Welcome to the Friday, April 4th, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, victims of the latest legislative funnel, Beto is back, and a congressional flood relief funding fail. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the State Capitol Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. Ed Gibbets of the Quad City Times is here. Good morning, Ed. Morning, Aaron. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find On Iowa Politics on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. First up this week, the Iowa legislature's second funnel brought down some pretty significant pieces of legislation. Policy bills had to be passed out of one chamber and a committee in the other, and some big ones didn't make the cut, starting with Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal for a constitutional amendment to restore felons' voting rights upon the completion of their sentences. That one died this week in the Senate's Judiciary Committee. Chairman Brad Zahn said there weren't enough votes to pass it without a companion bill that detailed what restitution would be expected of felons before getting their voting rights back. Let's talk policy and real-world impact here first, uh, because this is Max Iowans at uh, the Quad City Times editorial board, uh, with which you are involved, uh, recently wrote in support of the governor's proposal and its passage in the House uh, on a convincing 95-2 vote there. Is this a setback in terms of state policy, given that Iowa um, looks like it's going to remain one of, at least for a little while, one of two states in the country that requires felons to petition the governor to have their voting rights restored? Um, well, sure, yeah, it's a setback. Um, of course, it's a setback for the governor and, more importantly, for the state of Iowa. Uh, Iowa and Kentucky are the only states that, that do it this way, and it affects um, somewhere around 50,000 Iowans. Uh, other states have long jettisoned this relic, and, and Iowa is just lagging this. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think the Senate's decision this week was very disappointing, and I think it just points to what a lot of people have sort of suspected all along, and that's Republican legislature, maybe not all of them, but most of them, would rather this issue just never have come up. Uh, the governor decided to make it an issue, so they have to deal with it, but frankly, I think uh, most of them would rather this had, had never come up in the first place. Um, yeah, I, I think they can pass something next year and keep the constitutional amendment on track. Um, and, and its success depends, I think, on accompanying legislation to deal with issues like defining what a completed sentence means. But, you know, failing to move, move this year just raises the risk that, that nothing gets done. Yep, yep, and that's important to note. Uh, it's dead for this session, but they can come back and, and work on it next year. Um, but that uh, um, some hurdles remain either way. Um, politically speaking, Todd, uh, I wanted to ask you because, um, you know, that's a big part of what do we do here, talk politics. Uh, Governor Reynolds highlighted this issue shortly after winning the election. She made an essential point in her condition of the state address. She's continued to advocate for the amendment, work to convince legislators. Her staff was very prominent um, on this, regularly appearing at committee hearings when the bill was being uh, discussed, and, and that's not um, uh, a common thing. Uh, and in the end, at least for this year, it wasn't enough. 
Um, how big a deal is this for Governor Ellis? How big a setback is this for her as uh, the chief executive? Well, I mean, it's it's a setback in that she uh, made a high-profile appeal for it in her condition of the state, and, and now lawmakers have sort of balked at the idea. Uh, but, you know, she politically she deserves a lot of credit for having the political courage to do this. I mean, it's it's a sharp departure from what her predecessor, Terry Branstead, uh, the policy that he pursued, which is, you know, he, he revoked uh, executive orders by Democratic governors that automatically restored felon rights and then put this application process back in place. Uh, it's a break from her party in many respects. It wasn't that long ago that the Supreme Court was handling a case on, on felon voting rights that, you know, Secretary Paul Pate and others were out talking about how liberals were trying to let uh, child molesters and rapists vote. So, you know, there's there's been some demagoguery around this issue by Republicans over the years. So she deserves a lot of credit for, for you know, just stepping out and trying to do something about it. Uh, you know, on the other hand, though, we, we, we have yet to see her sort of do what governors in the past have always had to do, and that's kind of stand up to their own party and read them the riot act and maybe be you know, maybe say, if you don't want to do my priority, I've got a veto pen that I can use on some of your priorities. So we haven't seen her sort of use the bully pulpit or kind of pressure lawmakers to do something about this felon voting issue. And it's possible that she may try to do something before the session's over and revive it. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people wondering whether she would be willing to use her executive authority to to issue an order that would automatically restore rights. She has said she's reluctant to do that and wants the amendment, but it's looking pretty clear that this year and probably next year she she may not get that amendment, so it'll be interesting to see if she changes her mind. Yeah, it will be, and, and to that point, I asked the, the governor's spokesman um, uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, Thursday afternoon, um, when this bill died, if, if this changes her mind about that approach, and, and, uh, and you know, will she consider give more consideration now to an executive order uh, to handle this uh, that way, or or is the plan still to pursue the um, constitutional amendment and uh, her spokesman's response was that, that the plan remains the same. So at least for now, um, it doesn't sound like uh, she's considering the executive order, which is how the previous two governors handled this. Uh, but we'll see if over time uh, her mind changes on that. Um, just real quick before we move on from this, uh, I, I wanted to ask about that. The, and Ed touched on this, the restitution part here. Um, so, so Senate Republicans said that was the reason why they couldn't vote for this bill. House Republicans want to talk about restitution too, but they were at least willing to vote for the amendment, get that process moving with, with the pledge that we'll come back later and talk about restitution. Senate Republicans weren't okay with that. They wanted that first. That's going to be an interesting fight too, because now we're talking about what goes in and what goes out of that, you know, a buffer zone of, of a year before they get their voting rights back, maybe certain crimes um, exempted, um, uh, maybe having to be up on all fees and, and fines. Um, and, and then even beyond that, there's discussion within among legislators about what form it should take, whether it should be put into state law or the amendment itself. I mean, this is going to be a big thing, um, even if they try to come back and tackle this. And I guess I'm just curious, I'll let Todd or, or Ed, if either of you guys want to jump in on this. I mean, is this something you foresee 
legislators can come to an agreement on. This, this seems to me like a big uh, hurdle to, to climb if this is a mandatory piece of, of getting this done, this this restitution piece. Do you, either you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, with, with uh, I guess I guess I go ahead, Todd. Oh, I was going to say, with regard to restitution, I mean, under under the current system, I, I, I believe you only have to prove that you're making some progress at paying restitution. There were lawmakers that were talking about that you couldn't get your voting Correct. rights back until you pay all restitution, which, for you know, for a lot of uh, you know released felons, that that could mean basically a a ban for years, if not decades, and. Uh, so actually, you'd have a tougher system than you have now in many respects for for a lot of of, of released felons. So, uh, I mean, you can, it's you know we we they're going to get into this discussion on how how tough they want to make this, but in the end, the governor's message was about giving people second chances, and I think that's the core of what she wanted to do. And the legislature seems to be fi fixated on you know how they can you know make sure that they don't get portrayed by someone as, as voting soft on crime. I don't think their pursuit is as noble as hers. <laughs> so, I, you know, it'd be nice if they could if they could have come to some agreement. And, and they have plenty of time. They could have gotten the amendment started. You know, it's a long process, two general assemblies and then a, a vote of the people. Uh, they, they got plenty of time to, to work out these statutory issues, and they, they chose to scuttle the amendment while they couldn't agree on the statute. Uh, you know, Todd makes the point I, I was just going to make. Um, over in the House, um, you know, the 95 to 2 vote, I think, is is maybe a bit misleading because, um, you know, there's this statutory question hanging out there. Um, but over in the Senate, uh, but in, in the House, they decided to move it forward. They decided to keep this on track. In the Senate, uh, you know, uh, they just weren't even willing to go uh, that far, which doesn't speak, I think, all that well uh, to uh, – uh, to, to what they might do um, uh, on, on the statutory changes. It, it worries me that uh, that even if they are to move on it, they'll erect such barriers as to uh, uh, you know as to uh, as to really hurt the intent of the uh, of the amendment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's going to be interesting to watch that process fall, play out, and um, uh, it's going to be like I said. Uh, there's a lot of hurdles, a lot of. Um, um, Different viewpoints on on how that would look and how that would come together, and and that might stall this whole thing as well. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, as we talk about the funnel, felon voting rights weren't the only big bills that died this week. Uh, for a state house under unified Republican control, there seemed to be a lot of bills that couldn't muster enough support in both chambers to stay alive this session. Among them, a proposed constitutional amendment specifying there is no constitutional right to an abortion in Iowa. Another anti-abortion measure that was amended to become a de facto personhood bill that granted legal protections to a fetus, welfare work requirements, and a limited reinstatement of the death penalty, just to name a few. Uh, Republicans will take a crack at some of those next year. Uh, Representative Steve Holt, uh, for example, pledged as much on the anti-abortion amendment. Uh, but that's quite the roster of dead bills. Uh, Todd, am I wrong here? Does this seem like a, a pretty long list of unsuccessful bills uh, that are covering topics one would think Republicans could rally around? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, sometimes this comes down to sort of simple math that you've got a caucus where you're, you know, you've got a handful of members that aren't willing to play ball on certain issues. And, and so rather than kind of strong arm them or, or 
you know, try to change their minds. You simply, at this point in the session, you kind of have to dump some stuff overboard. On the other hand, you know, there, there may be some political, politically strategic thinking going on. I mean, especially on, on stuff like the, uh, you know, very strict abortion uh, uh, bills and, and the, the school voucher bill, which also dropped off the, off the agenda. Uh, you know, they, the Republicans didn't do very well in suburbs. They didn't do well with suburban women. There are lots of Democratic women lining up for 2000, uh, for the, for the, you know, the 2020 election to, to run against Republican incumbents. I don't think those abortion bills uh, have played well with those voters and, and some of the issues that they've pursued. So it may be that, that there are, there are, you know, folks in the leadership and the legislature that understand that and, and maybe are sort of cleaning some of that off the agenda for now while, while they're in that situation. But I, I think it's probably more of the, the latter than the, the former than the latter, that it's, it's probably math and, and not having the votes for some of these things than, than strategy, but it could be a measure of both. Yeah, um, you're probably right. And, and uh, but boy, that, that second point is an interesting one and, and maybe worth pointing out then as I look back at the, all the bills that I uh, listed, um, I think without exception, uh, those were all passed in the Senate, but not the House. Uh, and the House is the chamber that took the hit in this last election and has a more narrow um, advantage uh, among Republicans. Um, uh, so that's worth noting, though. They're very interesting. All right. So we move now from the Capitol to the caucuses. Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic presidential candidate and former congressman from Texas, is back in Iowa this week for his second trip here. And this time he's focusing on the central and western portions of the state after spending uh, most of his first trip uh, on the eastern seaboard. Uh, O'Rourke was in Sioux City on Thursday night. Our very own Brett Hayworth was there. Brett, how did things go for Beto in, in uh, round two? Right. Well, um, he went to a, a city college venue here that a lot of candidates have visited over the years and in the last cycle, in 2015, um, people that went there were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I want to give a quick aside, a quick preface, I guess, and hopefully it won't derail the podcast. But um, I remember going to cover Trump. It's, it's one of my favorite tales I like to say every so often. I went to cover Trump. Um, Trump had run, had had toyed with running it for president in 2011 before not running in 2012. And at this time in May of 2015, he was also talking, he was exploratory candidate at that time on whether he would run or not run. And I remember going there and the vibe was, well, let's see Trump in person here in Sioux City for a chance that we would never, never otherwise get before he doesn't run for president. And of course, it showed what, you know, myself and some of, some of the other people <laughs> thought, of, you know, no way Trump's going to run. And of course, the rest is history. Anyway, Anyway, um, that place holds about 300, and it looked really full, so it was a very good start, very good crowd-wise for um, for O'Rourke. Um, the crowd was definitely really into it. Um, he had a lot of red meat, I guess you'd say, of, of issues where there were, people were just totally um, you know, in, in agreement for you know what he was saying there. And, and on issues, he, he started off, um, it seemed very appropriate with all the flooding that we've had here in western Iowa. He talked about climate change and flooding in Iowa and, and down in Texas that, that he's seen um, some historic type floods down there and then shifted into that, how that how the need to address climate change and uh, spoke a lot about that to, to kick off. And then as, as he uh, went throughout his remarks, um, he talked about 
um, not supporting the wall, of course, the Mexican border wall and uh, health care. Talked a lot about education funding, and probably his biggest applause line of the night came on talking about gun violence and um, uh, all the school shootings and said that we need to, to rein in. Uh, military weapons that certain style, styles of what he called military weapons that are made to kill a lot a large number of people very efficiently should so should no longer be sold and and all in all just um uh, people really really enjoyed what they heard from him uh, uh, you know of those Democrats that were there. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, how much he was talking about the flooding. I heard uh, some other reporters um, mentioning that as well. And, and look, that's nothing new. Presidential candidates come in and they learn about uh, the local issues. Right. Uh, if I remember right, in, in uh, 2016 cycle, it was all the Democrats talking about uh, um, the Medicaid private management here in Iowa um, already uh, back then. Um, but but it, there just seemed to be there, there seemed to be a, a, a kind of an extra level of um, um, if, in whatever he he said about that last night that, that there was a little seemed there seemed to be a lot of people that were really impressed by the the detail yeah. uh, in which he detail, was talking that's about that's uh, that say. flooding issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's was, that was the word I was going to say it was detail. He, you know, he talked. There's something I hadn't thought about. Um, he said that as um, the federal government money should, is coming or is on the way to, to help the people um, that he thought one thing that should be covered is, is stored grain. Um, he said that he brought up the point that some farmers weren't selling their grain last year because of the tariff, the high tariff, uh, the tariff said it have impacted commodities, and therefore instead of selling the grain, they've been holding on to it, and then some of that grain then was lost in the flooding. And he said, well, that that uh, government should be covering that. So that was a, you know a detail um, that seemed pretty dialed in, and you know a good example that hit home for people here. Yeah, there you go. And if I, and I heard uh, Beto O'Rourke also got asked to the prom uh, last night. Is that right? And has he? Do you know? Has he spent the rest of the trip boutonniere shopping? Um, well, no. It, it was interesting. I, I I got to type the word prom promposal. I I think it's called for the first time in my <laughs> career of covering presidential candidate. Um, although uh, we had a, I don't know. Killjoy or stodgy editor made me take it out because it didn't know the proposal was widely was a widely known word. But, no, but, but yes, a high school a high school senior girl um, drew pretty good. She was about he took twelve questions. She was toward about the eighth question or so. It was, it was way a ways into the questions, and and she said, you know, I don't expect you to say yes, but I'd really like to ask you the prom. And she had a poster that she held up, and and he said he was very. Uh, very flattered. He said he, I, he had never been to prom because no one asked him. And then he said, well, but instead he said, well, how about a counter proposal? And he said, will you caucus for me? Was the response. So, <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, she's from Sioux Falls, which is across the border in South Dakota. So she will not caucus. She will not caucus for him. <laughs> well, at least not. And I don't know if he knew he was talking to a Sioux Falls young woman or not. But yeah. <laughs>
That's right, not even funding to help Americans suffering from natural disasters is safe from partisan gridlock in D.C. What's next? Is the federal government going to stop funding the Special Olympics? The hang-up <laughs> this time around is the level of funding for Puerto Rico, which is still recovering from last year's devastating hurricane, so that's keeping these two sides from agreeing on this legislation. Um, Ed, uh, do you have any thoughts on how we got here, and um, is this something Congress can ultimately figure out so we can get this uh, funding out to the communities that could use a little extra help? Um, well, whether they can do it quickly or not is uh, is really the question. Um, April 15th, they're scheduled to go on a two-week recess, and, and I think the reporting I've seen suggests that this is going to go at least into next week. Uh, and so the question is how quickly they can get it done. Um, how we got here, yeah, the hang-up seems to be Puerto Rico. Uh, the president is uh, insisting that no more uh, no more money go to Puerto Rico other than what was in the, uh, the nutrition assistance that was uh, in the Republican bill. House Democrats uh, believe that more is needed uh, to, uh, to help Puerto Rico with infrastructure costs and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so they're at, they're at loggerheads. And, and, you know, the president took some hits for, uh, for falsely saying that, uh, you know, saying the amount of money that had already gone to Puerto Rico. Uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're sort of at a standstill here. And, and I'm not really sure uh, what it is that will uh, break the logjam, but there's a lot of people out there that are hurting that need this money. And um, as you say, uh, you know, uh, disaster relief used to be one of those things that uh, was uh, was pretty automatic. Spend the money and get it out there. Yeah, um, and that leads me perfect to what I wanted to ask Todd. It, Todd, it, it seems like there are always little political squabbles in disaster funding bills. Um, you know, lawmakers like to sneak in little pet projects that have nothing to do with the purpose of the bill, but it always eventually or, or fairly quickly gets out, if I remember right. I mean, it, this seems like we're going to a new level uh, of of, um, of gridlock over something that, like Ed said, that used to be uh, fairly nonpartisan. Yeah, it is. We we keep hitting rock bottom and then digging a sub basement under rock bottom and just keep going. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the, the Democrat, you know, it's two things are going on. I mean, the Democrats should, should drop their objections and let this pass because the, the disaster aid is, is clearly needed. On the other hand, they, they make a, an excellent point about Puerto Rico and it's, you know, the federal response to that disaster has been frankly shameful. And this kind of recurring, theme among, you know, the Trump administration and others of, of sort of inferring that, you know, Puerto Rico is not part of the United States or it's not, you know, these aren't American citizens, which of course they are. I mean, it's that, that, that whole chapter has been something that a, lo a lot of people have been angry about for good reason. So, uh, you know, the Democrats have a good point about Puerto Rico. I just don't, I just don't feel like this is the, this is the way to make it by keeping people who are literally underwater and, and have had their homes and livelihoods destroyed. Uh, they, they need the assistance and they need it now. And, and we can, you know, we can have the debate over the Trump administration's inept response to Puerto Rico at another time. Yeah, or, or another place. I always thought when this kind of stuff happens, it would be great to say, uh, to call up the bill and say, we're going to have 
debate held um, in western Iowa in one of those, uh, right on Main Street in one of those towns that's uh, being flooded. Go ahead and debate the bill uh, right there, and, and uh, we'll see if the uh, uh, result is the same. All right. Well, we have one more quick note uh, before we go this week. Um, uh, we have an update on the 4th District primary race. Uh, just a, a little bit of breaking news Friday morning here uh, with some uh, with a big fundraising uh, number. Brett, you have that update for us? Right, yes. And, and this comes um, in the period um, for the, the first quarter uh, reports that are due from all the, the federal candidates running for office in 2020. And the cutoff was March 31st. And we're going to have a bunch of reports that will be trickling out um, with everything will be done by April 15th deadline. And what the journal has here this morning is from the Feenstra campaign um, that, uh, I'm sorry, for, uh, Randy Feenstra is a state senator from Hull, and he's running against um, longtime Republican Steve King in the Iowa 4th Congressional District, and there's four candidates running, and this is the first of the four candidates who have reports out with the re early release from Feenstra's team, and it shows that he raised $260,000 um, over the first three months. And um, he said that's the most for a first-time Republican congressional candidate um, in the first quarter of, of being a candidate. That's the highest for any Republican in Iowa congressional history is what his team is saying. And these reports, of course, are, are interesting because it's a sign of strength um, of, you know, where things will stand in this in this forming uh, GOP field. Um, people are, you know, looking how much traction essentially is, is Feenster getting, and this is a pretty substantial number, and it seems to show that he, you know, he is getting some traction, and people are coming to him, and, you know, we, we, we don't know the... Uh, we won't see the full report, but then you know, once we do, we can see like, well, who are these people and organizations that are giving to him, and we could maybe assess if these are people that used to give money to King, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the first of several reports that are going to be very interesting over the next 10 days or so. Yeah, exactly. For those exact points, that it'll be interesting when that information starts to come out. At the very least, Brett, this does give us a sense because one of the big questions here in this primary, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is whether um as as you noted there's four candidates so does the do the votes get split up and make it easier for king to survive or or do does support coalesce over uh, around basically one challenger and then king um which would make it uh tougher for him and this kind of indicates at least early on that um there certainly seems to be a lot of support around Feenster at this point am i close to the mark on that Absolutely right. Exactly. It's 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 how splintered. You know, will this be? And and would one one you know one challenger, Republican challenger, you know, kind of uh, get everything centered around him? And you know, obviously Jeremy Taylor, who's um, one of the other four candidates. He's a former state legislator, and he's a Woodbury County supervisor here in Sioux City. Um, you know, what, so what his report shows will be, you know. Uh, very interesting uh, material for people to, to look through. All right. So plenty of fodder for future on Iowa Politics podcast. That's it for this week's edition. We thank everyone for listening, and we hope it was worth your time. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can send fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. 
And as a reminder, we have day jobs too. You can find our work every week on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo City Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The Iowa band TGL will play us out this week. If you know a band or a talented Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, or even a sort of talented Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, go ahead and send us a sound file. For Brett, Ed, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. I spent four months traveling paradise With a look of gaze and wonder in my eyes It was a time of love and a time of lust Scatters of lyrics and pictures of The places I may never see again And friendships that I hope will never end Across the pond I'll leave a piece of my heart Remember finish everything you start Cause we